Well, good morning. Good morning. So, so this morning, as Raj just said, um, we're continuing our Sunday series called Life to the Full, looking at how the good news of Jesus affects every dimension of life. How this, this gospel message of Jesus changes how we think, how we behave. It changes how we live. And so today, our subject is marriage. And uh, because I am only half of our marriage, if you haven't noticed, Jodie is going to be helping me this morning too. So uh, we'll um, bring Jodie on a little bit later. Um, But I want to say that we're not doing it together because we want to portray that we have the perfect marriage. In fact, even in studying and preparing for this, you suddenly become aware of all your inadequacies, all your failures, all, all your weaknesses. But we do believe what God says about marriage is true. And so that's the message we want to bring this morning. Not look at us, but hey, look at Jesus. So, I did a little bit of research before this morning, and we have a church database that has all the names of people in, the church, in our church community in and who's who, and, and, it's, and it's told me that about 55% of Jubilee are married. Just 55%. I thought it'd be higher, but it's not. Just over half Jubilee are married. Uh, that's adults. So... If you find yourself this morning in the 45%, please don't switch off. Serious, don't switch off. Here are five reasons, there are more than five, but here are five reasons not to switch off. Number one, because we're a family. And you might find yourself praying for or supporting a married friend or vice versa. Number two, one day you may get married. It's just a fact. Number three, one day your children or a close relative may get married. Number four, because the culture we all live in is so confused about marriage. And that's the culture that you and I live in, whether you're married or not. And number five, because there is meaning to marriage that is meant to help you in how you see Jesus in his church. And some here will be married. Some have been married for a long time. Like Les and Judy aren't here today. Been married for 50 years. Just celebrated their 50th anniversary. Some of you haven't been married for 50 days. Like Jabba and Alice and Andrew and Anna. Some of you will have been married and are not married now. Some of you will have remarried. Some of you will be single. Some of you may actually be married but separated from your partner because of having to flee your nation. But wherever you are in all that, listen, the church is the family of God. 
And so we must, we must make sure that we don't make marriage, we don't idolize it. Do you know what I mean? We don't make it into an idol that we worship. And it, that can easily happen in church life. It can easily be something that we come to worship. And we have to be very careful not to do that. And we're also in this series going to talk about singleness in a few months' time. What a gift it is. What are some of the barriers we put up in church life that don't help? So we are going to talk about being single as well, but also in the context of being the family of God together. So let's pray before we start. Father God, we love you. We love the grace that you've brought us into. We love that it's a grace that we now stand. We love that we've been able to sing that this morning. And we want to ask, would you speak to us this morning? As you have been with us in our worship, would you be with us in this time, speaking deeply into our hearts, opening our eyes to more of your glory and helping us through what can sometimes be a difficult subject, but knowing that you are very good and faithful. Amen. So we are looking really today at marriage because marriage is not always easy and it isn't helped by having two people involved (laughs) that's a joke by the way (laughs) I saw this week um, on a BBC News website it was actually in the Times as well but I don't read the Times so I didn't see it in there but on a BBC News website this week there was, an, there was an interesting article about an Italian woman who married herself. We've got a picture up here. Yep, there we go. Just this week. Did anyone else see this? Yeah, a few people. And it, it's a growing trend around the world. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have any legal standing, but it's becoming known as soligamy or sologamy. Solo, being on your own. Sologamy. Just this summer in Brighton, a woman did the same. In a ceremony on Brighton Beach. All sorts of things happen on Brighton Beach. (laughs) Sophie Tanner promised, amongst other things, to face her disappointments, celebrate her successes, and be the best she can be. And there were bridesmaids, and there were wedding guests, And there was dancing afterwards. But by the way of just looking at it, it looks like a a wedding. It's like a marriage. And you might be thinking that as I was reading this article, I was just getting more and more annoyed and more and more frustrated. But actually, in it, I found some wonderful lines of truth. One lady said, I've decided that to be happy, I do not need a man in my life that's good. It's true. Another said that she would commit herself to facing life's disappointments and failures and learn how to grow from them. That's good. Amen to that. And it wasn't just women either. So this is, this is becoming popular with men as well. And in reality, both women, they did say that there was a hint of humour and lightheartedness to it. They, they, they said, look, it's not as if we're going to have to divorce myself 
if uh, the right man comes along. And, you know, if the right man comes along, that's fine. I'm not going to have to go down to the court and get a divorce. There's some lightheartedness to it. But the standout line for me in the whole article was this. One woman said this. Organizing the wedding was easy. There was only me to please. (laughs) And, And I do think, as funny as it is, that line kind of gives an insight into this whole premise of sologamy. See, why is marriage a challenge? Because someone else is there. There's someone else to think about. There's someone's thoughts and opinions to value. So why are we talking about marriage? Because it's not easy. And this morning, I'm not going to be able to say everything about marriage. And I might say some things that you would hope I wouldn't say, and I might not say some things that you hope I would say. But listen, perhaps as a start, go and look on our website and download four talks by Don and Lisa Smith, our friends from the US, who spoke on marriage a couple of years ago and did a wonderful uh, series for us that you can download off the website. Because I've got a short amount of time and we can't say everything. This isn't going to be a how-to-have-the-best-marriage talk. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not what this is. This is a, how does the gospel message of Jesus affect, transform, and shape our marriages, if we're married? And considering this whole theme, life to the full, believing that actually the gospel affects every area of our life, let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about marriage. If marriage is God's idea, then we want to look and see what he said and learn how to live it. So this morning, there are three ways that the gospel shapes marriage that I want us to look at. Particularly, it changes us to see the greater meaning. Changes us to act motivated by love, and it changes us to grow more like Jesus. Okay, so if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Genesis 2. Genesis is the first book in our Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, but don't worry, the words will be on the screen. And we're going to read verse 18 and then from verse 21. Okay, Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And we'll skip down to 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the ribs, closed them up, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. See, Genesis is telling us that marriage is not simply our idea. It's not simply something we've discovered that is good for societies to flourish. It's God's idea. And wives, in case you are feeling 
uh, that being called a helper is demeaning. This is the same word that is used to describe God in Psalm 115 to the people of God. He's a helper. It doesn't refer to a wife being inferior to a husband. It's about, it's about woman being the appropriate match for the man. More of a sense of they'll complement each other perfectly. Marriage is a team. So, turn to Matthew now. We're going to go and look at what Jesus says. Turn to Matthew chapter 19, 3 to 6. Matthew 19, 3 to 6. Again, the words will be on the screen. Some Pharisees came to him, that's Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, this is Jesus now speaking, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So here Jesus is going back to that Genesis passage. And he's going back, he's saying, I'm going back to the creation of the world. And he, and he says, what God has joined together. This is not just, marriage is not just the joining together of bank accounts, the joining together of DVD collections. Do people still have DVD collections? I don't know nowadays. It isn't just the joining together of uh, everyday living activities. No, God does something. God divinely joins husband and wife together. So today we're, we're deliberately putting a high view of marriage before us. Why? Because Jesus does. And that's what the whole Bible does. So if, if Genesis says that marriage is God's idea... If Jesus says that in marriage God does something in it, divinely joins husband and wife, then it's not left open for societies to change it how they wish. No, God's defined it. See, some people will argue Jesus never ruled out marriage between same-sex partners. He never ruled out marriage between a woman and a woman or marriage between a man and a man. However, clearly in this passage he links male and female creation to the coming together of a man and a woman in marriage. And you know what? That will put us as a church at odds with culture. It will. And we have to learn how to hold to God's truth with humility, without being obnoxious, and with grace and kindness, and with the gospel at the forefront of all our thoughts and discussions. So marriage is not ours to change. Marriage is, as many Bible teachers call it, an enacted parable. You know, Jesus used parables, didn't he? He used stories to tell a bigger truth. You know, he told a story, a parable. But in it, he was telling a bigger truth. Marriage is a wonderful thing. But actually, it's to point to, to be a parable of, 
to draw people's attention to an even more wonderful thing. Christ and his covenant relationship with you and I, his church. That's what it's a parable of. Through marriage, people are living out this story of Christ and his passionate love for his people and their response of love to him. And that's whether they know it or not. Marriage is often referred to as a common grace. You may have heard it referred to as that. That means it's not God's gift just reserved for Christians. It's for the whole world. Therefore, whether a married couple are Christian or not, they are in some way acting out this parable of Christ and his love for the church through marriage. Right. Let's read how that, that I've just explained, is explained in Scripture. That's a much better way. So, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 21. Now, this is the, probably the longest passage of Scripture about marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 to 32. So, this is the Apostle Paul talking about marriage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is saviour. Now the church submits to Christ. Also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. We've heard that before, haven't we? And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Okay. Some of you are ready to dismiss Paul's teaching there and then. Some of you are ready to assign that passage of Scripture to days gone by. Not relevant for today. This, believe it or not, was radical teaching. In the culture that Paul's writing into, women were often treated as possessions, not equals. In fact, some rabbis taught that divorce was acceptable if your wife cooked you a bad meal. Or if someone younger and prettier comes along. But you know what? I think, I think this passage is still radical today. But we have to look at it carefully. Because... Verses like wives submit to your own husbands when taken out of the bigger context have been used in some dreadful abuses down the ages. They really have. So even when looking at that phrase, 
We have to go back one verse to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Many scholars will say we actually have to go back even further than that. Back to verse 18, which we didn't read, which says, be filled with the Spirit. See, a community that's living every day in the power of God's presence amongst them will know how best to submit to one another and to serve one another. Husbands and wives who rely on the power of the Holy Spirit will be able to submit to one another to humble themselves, to to kind of get down low to lift the other one up. We start with be filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, submission in marriage is mutual. However, husband and wife play different roles in this enacted story, this enacted parable of Christ and the church. Both husband and wife equal, both submitting, both loving, both relying on the power of the Spirit, and both called to play different roles in this picture, this metaphor of Christ and his love for the church. Because God uses marriage, like I've said, to point to something much, much more wonderful. Are you married here today? That's your marriage. In the exciting times, because they're exciting times, in the dull, everyday, monotonous times, because there are dull, everyday, monotonous times. Through it, a greater meaning, a greater love is on display. Jesus' never-failing, never-ending love for his people. So there is much meaning in marriage. Okay, I'm going to stop there and let Jodie come and speak to us. For anyone who's a guest, this is Jodie. She's my wife, and she has got something she's going to share with us that we might all be helped in this subject. So why don't we give her a round of applause? Okay. The point I'm going to talk about is being motivated by love. And it might seem like a really obvious point to say that Our actions, our attitudes, and our behavior in marriage should all be motivated by love. But I think if we take a really honest look at our marriages, we might um, find that there are other motivating factors that might just subtly creep in. Sometimes in marriage, we can get into a mindset that our marriage is what is going to bring us ultimate satisfaction. And then pursuing this becomes our motivation. Now, there's a couple of newly married Uh, couples amongst us Um, and you are probably looking at your married life and thinking well this is pretty satisfying this isn't really requiring much effort I'm not having to pursue this it's just satisfying there might be some of us here who've been married a little bit longer and you've got perhaps got your children and they take up some of your time energy attention and you will know that pursuing a satisfying marriage is much harder and it requires more effort. When we're motivated by love, instead of marriage becoming about self-satisfaction, and what we get out of it, it becomes about how we can ensure that our partners are supported and blessed in the marriage. As Simon has said, we are holding out a high view of marriage. So yes, we agree that marriage should be fun. It should be a satisfying adventure together. However, if you are seeking ultimate satisfaction in your marriage, you're only ever going to be disappointed. There is only one relationship that can ever give complete satisfaction, and that is one with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When we get married, part of our identity changes as you become a husband or a wife. The danger in this is that it is easy for this to then become our primary identity. And we begin to find our value in how good we are at being a wife or a husband. We then become motivated to strive in our marriages to ensure that we're succeeding, because if we're not succeeding, then we lose value. In, as we saw in our last preaching series, In Christ, you can see that the important thing to remember is that our primary identity is as children of God. Our value is in the fact that we're loved and cherished by him. There's a, a song that we sing quite often, and a line in that song says, Seeing you in all your majesty, I wonder how it could be that you delight in me. And yet this is exactly what he does. If you're married, hopefully you have a husband or a wife that delights in you. But let me tell you, their delight will never, ever match the delight that God has in you, even if you are the perfect partner. Another motivation can be point scoring, where ultimately we are setting up our spouses to fail in order to make ourselves look like the better partner. You know, if we're honest, I think we would all say that we like to feel good about ourselves. And you know, a really easy way to make yourself feel better is to make somebody else look worse. That is not love. Perhaps we keep a mental note of all the bad things that they've done and we remember all the good things that we've done. Perhaps we might do something really nice for them, like make a meal, just to point out as they're tucking into it that that's the sixth time this week you've cooked and they've only done it once. You know, this is contrary to how the Bible tells us to treat one another. Romans 12 verse 10 says, honor one another above yourselves. When we're motivated by love, what we will want is for our partners to succeed and to be built up. And then how about being motivated by what others see? You know, sometimes our bigger concern can be to do things with our partner for the benefit of others to see rather than to show love to that person. I think it's probably crossed all our minds at times. Now, it's not wrong to want the world to see a good marriage, good examples of marriage, in order to bring glory to God. But what we must avoid doing is wanting people to see us as being the perfect partner and therefore somehow thinking that our good marriages as a result of our good efforts. And then what about duty? We make marriage vows to one another on our wedding days and sometimes fulfilling these vows can become a duty to keep the promises that we've made. Now we fully endorse those wedding vows and we would encourage you to do all that we can to fulfill the duty of those vows. However, if you're fulfilling those vows out of duty, this will bring about bitterness and it will steal your joy. How much easier is it and how much more joy does it bring when we fulfill our vows motivated by love? Then there's guilt. Now I can confess into falling into this one just this week. So on Wednesday night I got in from work and I thought I'm going to go for a run. So I went out for a run and left Simon sorting out the kids' tea. I then came home and I, I needed a shower, so I went for a shower and Simon thank, kindly finished sorting out our tea. 
Later on, I sat down to watch the Great British Bake Off with Emily, and Simon put Jude to bed. And as I sat watching telly, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, how self-centered has my evening been? How selfish have I been? My very next thought was, right, so what am I going to do to put this right? What can I do to make myself feel less guilty and feel a bit better? You know, thankfully, I realized that all I needed to do was say sorry, and by God's grace, I was able to do that. My motivation wasn't love, but it was about how I could make myself feel better. When we're motivated by love, we realize that it's not about making us feel better, but recognizing when our actions might have hurt someone else. Just to clarify, Simon wasn't actually hurt by my actions that evening. He, he, he coped. <laughs> He's scared for life, yeah. Okay, so how does the gospel change this? How does the gospel help us to be motivated by love? The gospel shows us that God was motivated by love in sending Jesus. John 3 verse 16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It was love that made him send Jesus for us. The gospel shows us that Jesus was motivated by love to die on the cross for us. Ephesians 5.25 says, Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Jesus gave himself up for us completely when he died on that cross for us, and it was out of love. 1 John 4 verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. When you understand the gospel and the love of God, it enables us to love when we don't feel like it. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you who are newly married, but there will be days when you don't feel like acting out of love in your marriage. There will be days when that is tough to do, when it's difficult. And it's on these days that God's love, sorry, on these days it's God's love that we draw on to help us. Simon will take off. Finally, finally, if you're married, it will help you grow more like Jesus. So if you're married or not, following Jesus every day means we seek to become more like him. That's God's plan for you and I. If you're single, there will be things in your life that help you do this by God's grace. If you're married, by God's grace, this will be one of the ways. And so some of us might be thinking, well, that's good because I really do want my partner to change. Listen, if you go into marriage with the intention that you're going to do God's work for him and try and change your partner for the better, you will end up disappointed. But if your focus is not on, I want them to change like this, but... I want, or, or I want them to be more like this, rather with God's help I'm going to change and become more like Christ. See, if you're married, God will use it to change you to be more like Jesus. And I'm not saying if you're not married, that's not going to happen. No, no, with the family of God and all together we're becoming more like Jesus. But if you're married, this is one way. So how will he use it? So husbands, you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's a leadership role in marriage. 
But how did Jesus express his leadership? Well, it was in being a servant. He showed them how much he loved them. He got on the floor and he washed their feet. Loving, serving leadership is like this. Jesus gave up his life for his bride, that's you and me, so that we would be holy and spotless. Husbands, does joyful, sacrificial, grace-filled... What does joyful, grace-filled sacrifice look in your marriage? How does that affect your free time, your finances? How you raise the kids, how you speak to one another, how you encourage one another, how you challenge... Listen, this is the words of John Hosier, our friend John, who was with us last year. A Christian husband is a lover, not a tyrant. A wife can submit to a husband who demonstrates sacrificial love towards her. Uh, sorry, a wife can submit to a husband who demonstrates sacrificial love towards her. The domination of a wife by a husband is not a biblical doctrine, but a personal moral failure. So a husband is to be sacrificial in his care for his wife but is also prepared to give a lead and then take responsibility for that leadership. That is the way of love. Okay, wives, you might be thinking, well, what about me? Do I just let my husband serve me in this kind of servant leadership role? What's my role here? Well, you remember what we said about Genesis. Marriage is a team. And your call, like the husband, is to learn how to live, love in a more Christ-like way. So when it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as it does, for us, that sounds very negative. Submission. Submission has a very negative feeling to us. It means defeat. we, We think it means failure. Actually, Jesus didn't see submission in that way. In fact, it was wrapped up in his mission. This is this is from Philippians chapter two. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, Jesus, fully God. Yes, the Father, fully God. But Jesus did not see submission to his Father as defeat or some lesser role. No, no, Philippians says he humbled himself for the sake of their plan of salvation for the world. It wasn't forced on him. No, he joyfully offered it as a gift. So, wives, too, your role is to become more like Jesus. So, who is being conformed to the image in Christ in a marriage? You both are. Okay, we're running out of time. We don't have time to talk about forgiveness, but you may have heard it said many times, a good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Forgiveness. And, and actually, Faye has said it all about forgiveness. Look at, look at the story of um, uh, um, Zacchaeus. Experiencing, coming, encountering the forgiveness of God in Jesus. What happens? It changes him. It changes him. 
do we get the power to forgive in marriage? Well, actually, it's by seeing how much we've been forgiven by God. Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's the motivation to forgive in any relationship, actually. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As we've been singing about this morning, amazing grace. We deserved punishment. We deserved death. But in his exchange at the cross, because Jesus died in our place for our sins, we're given life. We're given hope. We're given a new start. The marriages we have are imperfect. But even in imperfection, they point to a future day when Jesus will return for his bride. That's where all world history is leading. One day, God will put all things right and we will live with him forever. I was just having a conversation, even before this morning, with someone about the end times. Listen, this is it. Jesus will come back for his bride. And it will be a marriage celebration greater than any others. That's how the Bible pictures the end. That's how Revelation pictures the end. A wonderful celebration. And the bride will be presented pure and spotless. Do you know like in those wedding ceremonies, perhaps you've been to one over the summer, and the groom is standing at the front, and the congregation are standing waiting, and the bride comes in, and everyone gasps. And the groom doesn't really know what to do with themselves, but is overcome with emotion. And everyone thinks, wow. Listen, do you know, that's the, end, that's the picture. That is a faint glimmer of what Jesus says is our future. That he will welcome us as his bride. Say, look, look at my bride. Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she spotless? Listen, that will be you and I. Listen to the words of Andrew Wilson. Um, uh, if the band could come up, that would be wonderful because I just want us to pray and then respond in this amazing song that we're going to sing together. Andrew Wilson, who uh, is a Bible teacher from down south, says this, Jesus is coming back for a wedding and it will be a wedding that makes ours look half-baked in comparison where the feast will never stop, the wine will never run out, the dancing will never end. You and I, if we're part of the church of God, will be there, not as a guest, not even as an usher, but as the bride herself, the one who cuts the cake and appears in all the photos. So invite all your friends. Are we thinking about that tonight for Alpha? The wedding is coming soon. Let's pray. Can we stand? Let's pray and ask God the Holy Spirit to continue working in us. So whether you are married or not, 
just allow allow what marriage is meant to be a, a parable of, a picture of, to impress on you right now the love of Christ for you and I. <laughs> That's what it's there to do. Holy Spirit, would you impress on our hearts the amazing, sacrificial, life-giving love that Jesus has for us. Will you allow, will you allow marriage to just lift your eyes to see what a great future you and I are called into? That one day, there will be the wedding of weddings. The celebration of celebrations. As we're presented pure and spotless. Not through any efforts of our own, but because of the grace of God. To our loving King Jesus. Listen, that's your future that's my future if you trusted in Christ. Lord Jesus, I want to ask, would you strengthen and bless marriages and jubilee? Would you help and give grace, impart grace right now for those that have been married many years, for those that have been married perhaps only a matter of days. Impart grace to strengthen Perhaps even just think of your partner right now. If you're married, just pray for them. Ask the Spirit to strengthen them. Ask God to reveal ways you can serve them. If you're not married, pray that marriage on Teesside would be seen through this church, through many other churches, as pointing to the gospel and pointing to the love of Christ? Would it be the enacted parable it's meant to be? Holy Spirit, come and work in us. Whether Maybe even where there's difficulties right now, would you um, open ways through? Would you provide strength to stand? Would you provide grace to endure? And would we, as a whole community, celebrate your covenant-keeping love for us all? Let's sing together, celebrating this amazing love that marriage points to.